2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring part. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about how Trump could win with Ari Berman of The Nation. Also, we'll ask historian Eric Foner the question that has troubled Bernie Sanders' supporters for months Why didn't more black people vote for Bernie? How come so many African Americans support Hillary? First up today, it's time to ask the question, who is Donald Trump's dream opponent? For some answers, we turn to Steve Fraser. Steve's the author of many books, including The Age of Acquiescence, Every Man a Speculator, and Labor Will Rule, which won the Philip Taft Award for the Best Book in Labor History. He's written for the LA Times, the New York Times, the London Review of Books, and The Nation. And his new book, just published this week, is The Limousine Liberal, How an Incendiary Image United the Right and Fractured America. We reached him today in Manhattan. Steve Fraser, welcome to the program, and tell us, who is Donald Trump's dream opponent?
0: Uh, thanks for having me on again. And uh, uh, his dream opponent, it seems to me, is uh, unmistakably Hillary Clinton, who is the, the modern day quintessence of the limousine liberal. Uh, and I think that uh, Trump's, uh, much of Trump's support originates in a kind of animosity directed against a a ruling elite that has been described as limousine liberal in its inclinations for a long, long time. And Clinton embodies that. Uh, Although I really think, having said that, that she will win in a a landslide.
2: (laughs) So you say the key image in populist politics today is this limousine liberal, which we're putting in quotes It has a history, and you have found uh, the history of this. Where, Where does this idea come from?
0: Well, I think the idea comes from even before the term was invented, which is in 1969. Even before that, there was a growing resentment about the power and the, the combined power of the of the modern corporation, modern capitalism, and its alliance with uh, with the state. and And I think that there was a, a lot of right wing populisms, for instance, in the 30s, Father Coughlin, Doctor Townsend, and others, and even Joseph McCarthy in the 50s. Who who depicted this uh, elite that was reforming, doing something that elites are not supposed to do. They're not, elites are supposed to defend the status quo. These elites were overturning the status quo. FDR might be thought of as the first uh, limousine liberal in the eyes of the of right wing populism. That is, say, he was overturning the the the, the normal uh, political order, uh, changing the way economic activity went on, regulating the economy, uh, creating a law Large state to interfere in uh, uh, in all kinds of matters that once uh, were considered either local or private, and so on. So there is this uh, long tradition, which comes to a head in 1969 when uh, Mario Procaccino, an obscure politician running for the uh, on the Democratic Party ticket for mayor, is running against a, a, a someone he depicts as a limousine liberal, and that's John Lindsay, who was the sitting mayor of New York at that time, and Lindsay he was exactly the kind of person that fits this limousine uh, liberal profile. He was to the manner born. He grew up on Park Avenue. His father was a uh, Wall Street banker. He went to uh, uh, St. Paul's School in New Hampshire. He went to Yale. He worked in a Wall Street law firm. He represented the Silk Stocking District in Congress. And yet given all those credentials he was a guy for civil rights for bussing for affirmative action for police review boards and so on so he was the classic subversive elitist and and, uh, and who didn't seem to give a damn about working people uh, except for the poorest uh, working people who he thought of as, as rightly as racially disadvantaged as discriminated against so that uh, Procaccino had a lot of support in the outer boroughs in the working-class boroughs of New York among Germans and Irish and and Italian workers uh, who who kind of resented the fact that limousine liberals wanted to reform things without bearing the burden of any of that reform so, you know while their kids were going to private school they were going to tell working-class kids to be bused from one neighborhood across town to another Neighborhood, all that kind of resentment built up uh, against Lindsay and and then and then has since then has been used by the Republican Party over and over and over again, beginning with Nixon's invocation of the silent majority to target this elite, which doesn't have to pay the cost of change but wants everybody else to change um, and doesn't really care about. Either the material well being or the cultural traditions and beliefs of uh, working and lower middle class people, especially white people.
2: Of course, Hillary and her supporters will say she didn't grow up on Park Avenue. Her father was not a, a banker. She, this is, she's not a limousine liberal. What
0: exactly right? She isn't to the manner born, and there have been many limousine liberals since the term was invented who haven't actually hailed from those precincts. She was uh, she grew up in, you know in modest circumstances. Was a uh, a worker for Goldwater as a, as a, as a young uh, a young woman, low, low, kind of middle class upbringing. No. Special uh, pedigree. Hillary doesn't come from that background, but has has actually walked the walk of the limousine liberal. She's now, of course, quite wealthy as her husband is. She's become very tight with, as we all now know ad nauseum, Goldman Sachs. Uh, uh, you know, every major uh, corporate interest in the country. Uh, I'm talking modern corporate, not the Koch brothers. Uh, support uh, have supported her various campaigns. Uh, the prison industrial complex and the hedge funds that own lot of it are heavily invested in her campaign uh, you know, so that she has become a kind of advocate of a neoliberal capitalism which her husband championed as head of the Democratic Leadership Council one in which the market is supposed to take the lead, one which led to the deregulation of Wall Street which she supported um, uh, the end of the Glass-Steagall Act she has a long record uh, of earning, even though she didn't come from those precincts, earning the, the credentials of a limousine Uh, liberal, and I think that's why Trump will be able to attack her that way.
2: Trump, however, doesn't seem to be a very good uh, enemy of the limousine liberals. He's sort of a limousine liberal himself. He comes (laughs) from a wealthy family. He's got a private jet. He lives in luxury. Uh, He's a billionaire. I think you've heard about this.
0: Uh, Yes, I have. (laughs) Yeah, he's not—he's not the in his in his personal in his personal uh, resume. He's he's not the perfect limousine liberal, but he expresses well and violently and with great passion the resentments that are felt for not only the limousine liberal establishment but all establishments. How does he get away with that? Given the fact that he is a billionaire yeah. and so on, yeah. Well, that's a good question. First of all, it's interesting to me that some of the things where he departs from kind of hardline conservatism have to do with matters of social security, uh, even now he's edging around about minimum wage, uh, taxing the rich. This is interesting to me because the opponent, the silent majority often that hates limousine liberalism is often a lower middle class and working class constituency which actually wants those kinds of benefits and, 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 and that kind of protection from the state hence the, the emotional logic of the illogical statement tell the government to keep its hands off my Medicare. That's crazy and yet it's it's true in in a sense for people. What they what, what they mean is they really value that. Trump knows that and yet uh, the, this scapegoating of the limousine liberal has associated uh, uh, in their minds the leviathan state with everything they hate. So I think Trump is careful about that, and I think Trump also, uh, he, he's riding the wave of, uh, of a kind of populist, right-wing populism that's been building for a long time. The Tea Party has only been the latest expression of that. There's only one other guy in American history who fits exactly Trump's profile, but with one big difference, and that's William Randolph Hearst, who- was himself, of course, uh, a, a titan of, of business. You know, controlled the media uh, in his day. Was to the manner born, very wealthy father, ruthless father, etc., um, etc. Et but was the bad boy of the establishment, hated by the establishment, just the way Trump is. And he he rode the wave. He wanted desperately to be president. He'd never even served as dog catcher. He wanted to be president uh, and 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 also governor of New York and nearly became mayor of New York on the base of no political experience by riding the wave of what was then left-wing populism. He championed labor unions. He he championed the cause of immigrants and the poor. He was a a guy who who attacked the trusts and monopolies of that day. Completely demagogically, anti-Semite, later opposed the New Deal, but kind of manipulated this wave of populism, which I think is what Trump is doing from the right today.
2: One more thing. Trump is running against Hillary as... A limousine liberal as a, the establishment candidate this year. Hillary says she is not part of the establishment because she is a woman and the establishment is a male domain. What do you think about that?
0: Well, I think that uh, obviously that's true. I mean, there's, there's, there's and Trump, to put it mildly, is going to suffer badly because of his misogyny. Uh, but but really, that's only partly true. Would 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 we be saying the same thing uh, were were uh, you know Michelle Bachman running for president or someone more qualified, Condoleezza Rice uh, running for president? Uh, uh, you know, it's very interesting. This this kind of identity politics can play two ways uh it's it's after all the republican party which appointed some of the most uh, some of the most powerful posts women to begin with so i think hillary can play that card and has a right to play it given what trump is saying about women there's no question of that but of course i think she's going to win anyway uh, and among women she's just going to win by tons i mean it is uh, he's, he's i think he's lost that long ago
2: the polls right now show that Bernie Sanders would do better, in some polls, considerably better uh, than Hillary ag- against Donald Trump in November. How does that fit into your analysis of his campaign?
0: Yeah, I think what we have going on in the country today is, is, is two populisms, one from the left and one from the right. I think Sanders has shown this capacity to beat all Republicans by larger margins than Hillary for many months. There's good reason for that. He's completely trusted more than any other candidate. She is completely mistrusted more than any other candidate, even on the Republican side. Uh, there's good reason for that because, A, his banking, he's not a limousine liberal. His bank account much too small for that. He he. he, 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 he uh, has said what he's saying today for 25 years people completely believe that he means what he says he is also uh, a guy who nobody would question has tight ties with wall street gives him the chills so uh, the, the and so what he's what he's drawing on is this very broad anti-establishment from the left sentiment this passion which was at first maybe expressed by occupy wall street has since then taken various forms in the election of various progressive mayors uh, minimum wage and living wage ordinances all over the country, fast food workers strikes, other kinds of strikes going on all over the country. There's been a building kind of, I here's what I think, really, that there's an underlying anti-capitalism on both the left and the right that, that, is, that expresses itself as a kind of anti-establishment system. Sentiment disgusted with the cynicism, the corruption of politics, and the long, slow decline in the American standard of living over many years under the auspices of neoliberalism. And both Trump and Sanders benefit from that. Trump's people are phobic; they 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 want to blame whoever it is—immigrants. You know, they're xenophobic. They're nationalists. They're they may be uh, misogynist. They're obviously racist in many cases. But all of these things are forms of class politics in American life. That's, that's the weird thing about class struggle in America. It often proceeds under the guise of uh, racial animosity. It often has proceeded under the guise of racial animosity. I think that was what Prochino was about back in, this, in the late 60s. And I think today it's Trump. Sanders is more forthright. He says, look, we, we, we live in a kind of economic oligarchy in which all the avenues and channels of power are controlled by that oligarchy. We need to revolutionize.
2: Steve Fraser, his new book published this week is The Limousine Liberal, How an Incendiary Image United the Right and Fractured America. Barbara Ehrenreich calls it necessary reading for anyone seeking to understand or just endure 2016. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Uh, Thanks very much. So Steve Fraser thinks Hillary is going to win in a landslide. Now it's time to talk about how Trump could win. The odds are very much against Donald Trump getting elected president in November. At least that's what the pollsters tell us, because it's going to be extremely difficult for him to win a majority of the votes in the Electoral College In presidential elections, especially American politics, follows long-term patterns. 40 of our 50 states have voted the same in every presidential election since 2000. Trump will never win California or New York or Illinois, and the Democrats will never win Texas or Louisiana or Georgia. And the Democratic states have a lot more electoral votes. You know, it takes 270 to win. The Democrats are likely to get something like 253. So they need only a couple of swing states. Donald Trump, of course, knows this. And he also knows there is one way he can win, one way he can overcome the Democratic advantage in the electoral college. For that story, we turn to Ari Berman. He's a senior contributing writer for The Nation and author of the indispensable book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, welcome back. Hey, John. Good to talk to you again. Well, of course, Trump's base is working-class whites. He thinks he can turn them out in unprecedented numbers, and that will help carry him to victory. Is the working class white vote the way Trump can win? The way the way Trump wins is by
3: uh, doing much better or as good as Republicans have done in the past with white voters uh, and then hoping or trying to manufacture a situation where Democrats get many fewer non-white voters. Because if you look at the numbers now, the American electorate has become increasingly diverse. So George W. Bush's numbers in 2004 among white and non-white voters, if those numbers were replicated by Trump... Trump would lose, and that means that Trump either needs to get a larger share of the non-white vote or a greater share of the white vote. Now, it's very, very unlikely he's going to get a larger share of the non-white vote than someone like Mitt Romney or John McCain because he said so many things to offend so many different constituencies. So it's more likely that he'll then try to get a larger white vote and potentially try to suppress the vote that's not for him. And and that's what I'm foreseeing as a possibility for him in the fall.
2: Trump, especially after the New York primary, complained that the Republican primaries were rigged against him Uh, He said the fact that his own kids couldn't vote in the New York primary was a key example of this. Does that mean he wants to make it easier to vote in America this November?
3: No, unfortunately, he doesn't seem to have learned much from his kids' own experiences. His kids were unable to vote in New York because they were not registered Republicans, and the deadline to switch your party registration in New York was six months before the election. So they, along with millions of other people, were not able to vote in the primary. Trump repeatedly complained every time he lost that the system was rigged against him. He said he wanted maximum voter participation, but then he was asked on Meet the Press do you support things like same-day voter registration that would have allowed uh, his kids to vote in New York? And he said, no, I don't support that. That's not a way to expand the party. Uh, And then he said that he doesn't want non-citizens voting, for example, even though there's no evidence that they are voting, that you have to be an American citizen to vote. And then Chuck Todd said, well, that's already the law. And Trump said, well, people can just walk in and vote um, like you're going to a 7-Eleven or something. And so despite the fact that he's... Said that he, he wants more people to participate, he's not actually supporting voting laws that would allow people to do that.
2: Of course, we care about voting restrictions everywhere, but for the purposes of the presidential election, there's only a handful of swing states that matter, and I want to ask you about... Voting restrictions in the swing states, how severe they are and how likely they are to make for a Trump victory. Top of the list, of course, is North Carolina. How is it going for the Republicans with a vote suppression in North Carolina, which has 15 electoral votes? Well,
3: North Carolina passed the most sweeping voting restrictions in the country, Uh they cut back on uh, early voting. They eliminated same-day voter registration. They required strict voter ID to cast a ballot. They did a number of things in addition to that. Uh, that those restrictions were just upheld uh, by a district court, so now that's on appeal. But in the meantime, all of these restrictions are in effect, including the voter ID law for the first time in 2016. So this could have a big impact on the election, uh, losing all of these reforms that were very important, like a same-day registration, and then also having uh, new restrictions like voter ID on top of that, uh, this could be very consequential, not just for the presidential race, but for other races there
2: as well. And what's the calendar on this uh, appeal of the restrictions?
3: the appeal i think will be heard sometime in the summer and then there's just the question of uh will things be struck down before the election will there be an appeal to the supreme court uh, will the supreme court which is currently deadlocked 4-4 be able to hear these cases so we saw some of this happen in 2014, and for the most part, uh, the Supreme Court left new voting restrictions in effect in the 2014 midterm. And we're not sure what they'll do now because they're deadlocked. The appeals courts may be the last word on these things. And so we're seeing a lot of, of different states have uh, different laws that are somehow or another locked in an ongoing legal battle there's 17 states that have new voting restrictions in place for the first time in 2016 and in nine of those states these laws are before the courts
2: and then there's virginia another swing state with 13 votes what's happening with restrictions on voting in virginia So Virginia has
3: some good things and some bad things. They have a new voter ID law there, uh, which is bad, but they also just gave uh, the right to vote to uh, felons who previously couldn't vote, which is going to lead to about 200,000 people getting the right to vote back in that state. Uh, That is potentially before the courts as well, um, because the Virginia Republican Party says they're going to sue Terry McAuliffe. He doesn't have the executive authority to do this, so we'll see what happens there as well.
2: One of the biggest, maybe the biggest swing state is Florida. A lot of us still have never gotten over the 2000 disaster in Florida. 29 electoral votes. How are voting restrictions going to work in, in Florida this year?
3: Florida... If for once, it doesn't look like it's going to be a problem state. Uh, they had a bunch of new restrictions in place in 2012. They had very, very long lines as a result, seven-hour lines in some places like in Miami. Uh, that's not the case this year. Uh, we're much more likely to see major problems in states like Wisconsin and North Carolina in 2016 than in Florida.
2: And another one of the key swing states is Ohio. Of course, the Republicans are holding their convention in Ohio in the hopes of carrying Ohio. Where do we stand on voting restrictions in Ohio? 18 electoral votes.
3: There's a lot going on in Ohio. They uh, cut back on early voting. They eliminated the ability to register to vote during the early voting period. There's been a major purge of voters in Ohio. Uh, So uh, there's once again a lot going on there as well.
2: Trump needs something like 79 electoral votes, according to the people who are counting right now, in swing states to get to 270 in victory. You say the one way Trump can win is with massive vote suppression that will prevent minorities and young people from voting Democratic in November. But even with vote suppression in swing states, it seems likely that Hillary Will still win, or or am I wrong about that? Well, we'll see what happens.
3: Uh, there have been uh, a number of polls that have showed a closer election than uh, people initially anticipated, so we we just don't know. Uh, I think that if it's a close election, uh, these restrictions could make a difference, and I think that what Trump could do is go beyond just what we've seen. Uh, that it's not just that he's going to support policies that are going to make it harder to vote. He could also try to create chaos at the ballot box. Uh, he could engage in all sorts of different conspiracy theories about voting as a way to inflame his supporters. So I think he could go beyond what we've already seen from other Republicans in this area.
2: Ari Berman, com. Thank you, Ari. Thank you, John. Now we return to a question that has puzzled and frustrated Bernie Sanders supporters since the beginning of the primaries. Why don't more black people support Bernie? Why do African-Americans overwhelmingly support Hillary? For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He's an award-winning historian who's written many books. My favorites are The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, and Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He teaches at Columbia. He's also on the editorial board of The Nation. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. Eric Foner, welcome back.
4: Hello, John. Nice to talk to you.
2: First of all, where do you stand in the Hillary versus Bernie contest? Who did you vote for in the New York primary?
4: Well, my um, home is uh, a house divided, as Lincoln put it. Um, (laughs) My wife, uh, who is a sort of quintessential demographic type for this, voted for Hillary, and I voted for Bernie. I have been a strong supporter of Bernie all through his campaign, and I... um, Hope he continues to remain in the race, even though the uh, prospects of his nomination seem to be uh, dim at the moment.
2: Well, I know you've heard the same Bernie supporters that we have who say, what is the matter with black people? Don't they know Bernie's issues, minimum wage, yeah. free college, are much more in their interest than Hillary's? Uh, you've heard this. Well,
4: I I, I agree with that. Th- th- I have heard that many a time. And... Um, I wrote this little piece, which is on the Nation website, um, partly because I um, found the tone of that discussion, at least, you know, this is not a scientific sample, but among people I know, uh, getting a little bit too, um, I don't know, patronizing that, uh, you know, the old, and I think... um, the old concept, which I think ought to be retired, of false consciousness, uh, kind of gets uh, revived here. You know that yes. these black people don't really know their own interests; they're kind of being bamboozled. Personally, I do think that Bernie's program, if implemented, uh, on banks, on uh, reviving American industry, on inequality would uh, taxes would certainly benefit african-americans more than clinton's position but people do not just vote their economic interests um and i think there's a sort of tendency to assume that that's what everybody does i think there are plenty of reasons why african-americans particularly middle-aged and older ones i think it, like among students there were quite a few non-white students who were voting who are supporting Bernie. But I think, you know, you've seen the statistics, the same ones I do. When you get above 40, let's say, it's overwhelmingly 80 or more percent uh, have voted for Hillary. And I just wanted to try to figure out why that was the case without blaming them for doing it, if you see what I mean.
2: You, I know you recently were in South Carolina, and of course it was the South Carolina primary that was so overwhelming in in demonstrating the depth of black support for Hillary. What did you learn on your recent trip to South Carolina?
4: I I was there uh, speaking uh, at a two-day symposium about the history of the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. I gave the opening evening uh, keynote in a black church. This was a public thing. It was not purely academic at all. Most of the people who were there were not uh, university people. Uh, There were several hundred who came out, uh, black and white. It was a very mixed audience. And I I didn't go around polling people, but I took the occasion to speak with as many people as I could about the election uh, and just trying to find out what was on their minds about this. And I, you know, one of the things that we know, but somehow when you speak to people directly in the uh, circumstance, it drives it home a little more, is that, you know, that the Tea Party Republicans are in control and a lot of, Southern states, including South Carolina, and this has led to a, uh, you know, sort of a great fear, really, of losing rights that they had thought they had won among African Americans. Blacks still make up over a quarter of the population of South Carolina, but many of them feel kind of beleaguered. You know, they have a governor who did take down the Confederate flag, but basically has done nothing else for African Americans. They refused to expand Medicaid, which would have certainly benefited blacks very much in that state. Uh, they have new voter suppression laws, as in other uh, Republican-controlled states. Uh, so, what, what is the point of this? You know, yeah, they're in a kind of beleaguered position, and I think that that affects how they view politics. They are looking for, uh, first of all, winners—somebody they actually think may win—and I think they think Bernie is more of a protest candidate. Um, and they're looking—they're looking for people not—they're not necessarily looking for broad, sweeping. Future programs, as much as somebody who they know and who they can count on to sort of maybe try to stem the tide of re- of removing uh, gains that they have um, achieved, uh, so uh, in other words, th- I think this kind of mentality makes them more conducive to supporting Hillary than Bernie. Um, and you know we you know you know the situation in the newspaper but being there really impressed on me this sense among black people of all ages of being really uh, you know almost an enemy territory so to speak now
2: the nation ran a big article a few weeks ago by michelle alexander titled why Hillary Clinton does not deserve the black vote. She pointed to the mass I incarceration did. that began under the Clinton uh, years and the Clinton welfare reform, which directly hurt you know millions of uh, poor black yes, uh, women absolutely. and their children. Why do you think that hasn't had that history of the Clintons? Well, you know,
4: I think Hillary is a known quantity, or perhaps the Clintons are a known quantity. Bernie is not well known. Uh, he obviously comes from a state with a tiny black population. The people who I heard, again, middle-aged, older, but some younger politicians speaking of with great, um, you know, kind of uh, fondness, first of all was Jimmy Carter, who doesn't have that high a reputation in, uh, outside of the South, I don't think. In other words, they are looking for allies. They're looking for allies. They know that by themselves, African-Americans Cannot really accomplish that much in a state like South Carolina under current conditions. Uh, they're looking for white allies, and the people they're looking for are those who a are familiar and b who they think, despite uh, many uh, perhaps uh, you know mis- uh, misguided policies, have a record of speaking out on racial issues. On particularly Clinton and Carter, this is Bill Clinton appointing blacks to office. You know they bill clinton and jimmy carter appointed more blacks to federal court positions than obama has and um, you know that's not just symbolic politics or race politics that those positions are of great practical importance uh... when uh... criminal justice issues come up or when policing issues come up or when voting rights issues come up it's very important who's on the bench and i think uh, the, despite the uh, crime bill of 1994, and despite the welfare reform, which have, you know were reprehensible, I totally agree um, other things that the Clinton administration did are seen more favorably among uh, black voters.
2: The most powerful thing Hillary has done in this campaign uh, with black people that, that I know about has been enlisting the mothers of black children killed by the police or in gun violence. She's, she's got the mothers of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and Tamir Rice who have campaigned with her. They have done TV ads for her. That is big. They didn't do that with Bernie. Bernie does have Erica Garner, the 25-year-old daughter of Eric Garner. So Bernie has the daughter, and Hillary has basically all the mothers.
4: Well, yeah. Well, that, I'm sure, had some effect. Personally, I find it, um, I don't know a little creepy so to speak um by the way hillary has done the same thing in in the connecticut primary with parents of some of these school children victims at the sandy hook elementary school yeah she has made uh gun control a big issue for black and white voters and um has attacked Bernie, as you well know, for his uh, position on uh, gun regulation and things like that. Yes, I'm sure it makes a difference to people to see those mothers uh, talking about Hillary Clinton. I think Bernie's positions on these things are just not very well known in the black community, despite advertising, things like that. I know he's gotten that, but, you know, Bernie has not made a, I think this is a matter of principle, he has not made a particular uh, appeal to black voters in ads. He appeals to everybody. He appeals to those who are uh, upset with inequality. Uh, black people are perfectly aware of inequality. They don't need a candidate to come in and tell them that uh, there's any inequality in this country. That's a pretty obvious to any black person in America. You know, this is, you can go back to Eugene Debs, his hero, uh, who once said supposedly that he didn't want to make a special appeal to any particular group. He's speaking for the working class, and if he uplifts the working class, those at the very bottom, African Americans, will benefit more than anyone else, but that he's interested in class issues. Bernie hasn't quite put it that way, but I think there's a certain um, sense of that in his campaign. And in a way, it's admirable, but I think in terms of appealing to groups of voters, it may seem a little too abstract, so to speak, for people who are facing very concrete problems right at the moment. You know what I mean? That arise at being black. And not all problems of people in this country arise out of the depredations of Wall Street, even though Bernie has done a great job in highlighting those.
2: One last issue, Obama. Bernie has criticized Obama from the left. Hillary is kind of claiming to be the uh, legitimate successor to Obama that has a bearing on black support.
4: Yeah, I, you know, I think black, black people and this was universal among people I spoke to. Are very sort of protective of Obama. They are very aware that behind much of the criticism of Obama lies racism. Uh when they hear people say Obama's lazy or he's a food stamp president, they they hear long-standing racist stereotypes in that language. And uh, Obama is the first African-American president. Personally, I don't think he's done a heck of a lot for African-Americans, but they really uh, feel that he has sort of gotten a raw deal from uh, the opposition. Hillary does identify herself very closely with Obama, although according to the newspapers, she has disagreed with him on many foreign policy issues, or at least been somewhat more bellicose than he. But nonetheless, I think Hillary is... Uh, reaping the benefit of her association with Obama. She was Secretary of State, so she was part of the administration, and um, in a certain sense, blacks are voting for Obama when they vote for her, and uh, there's nothing Bernie can do to counter that.
2: So voting for Hillary is casting one last vote for Obama on the part of right. black America. I, I think that's a a brilliant uh, insight.
4: I, I think the real problem right now in the eyes of Black. Is this kind of backlash which is taking away? Basic rights that they have uh, you know want to uh, exercise, and I think that is making them sort of defend it, it leads to a kind of defensive politics it could lead to a kind of very radical politics, but I think here it leads to a defensive politics where they say, look who is going to be able to help us right now dealing with these very concrete problems, not who has the biggest program for long-term structural change in the in American life.
2: Eric Foner's article, African American Voters Have a Good Reason to Support Hillary Clinton, is at the top of the most popular list at TheNation.com. Eric, thanks for talking with us today.
4: Okay, Don, nice to talk to you.
2: Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at TheNation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
1: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24 7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quitgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time